Hello and welcome to another Quarren stream. I am Joe Magician and today I'll be tackling the surprising return from the grave of the one and only Rhaegar Targaryen. Uh, no, not the literal corpse of Rhaegar though, shambling forth in the land, although that would be pretty metal for like an actually undead Rhaegar. No, instead, I mean the return of Rhaegar into the consciousness of the powerful across Westeros and Essos, seemingly all at once. Characters who have no contact with each other across thousands of miles are all dreaming and thinking of the dead Silver Prince's memory, kind of at once. Driving the conflicts into Winds of Winter and what seems to be particularly disastrous results. <clears throat> Before we get going, I just wanted to remind everyone to like, subscribe, Hit that bell button, leave a comment if you're watching on um, if you're watching the replay or review if you're listening on the podcast version. By the way, you can listen to this on podcast version um, goes out on, under the name Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician. So if you miss these and you don't feel like watching a video for two hours, you can just listen. All these little actions from you help a lot in getting these seen by the YouTube algorithms, a fun thing to combat. And as usual, if we hit 150 likes on this stream, I'll put on the fancy wizard hat. I should have just used my other hand. There we go. I'll put on the fancy wizard hat. Um, which, by the way, some of you may have seen, I'm redesigning the channel artwork with the help of San Rixian, and that hat features pretty prominently in it. So uh, I put that on the community page on YouTube. It's up on Twitter. Um, patrons have seen basically all of it already, so I, I'm really happy with it. San Rixian's doing amazing stuff, so it'll probably be launched with my next video or something like that. And at 175 likes, I'll put on my Gurm hat, which is sitting right here, with the jeweled turtle for the rest of the, <clears throat> for the, rest of the stream. Wow. I'm going to take some water. And if you want to support me and the channel, the best ways are through Patreon at patreon.com slash Joe Magician and here through Super Chats if you feel like it, as Maura Lee already demonstrated with her incredibly generous gift. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's go back to our boy, Rhaegar. There's a particular quote about Rhaegar that always makes me wonder about how George is planning to use his long dead character. And this comes from one of the characters who seems poised to cause mass death and destruction in the Winds of Winter. That is John Connington, the Griffin Reborn. No amount of prayer would put him on the Iron Throne, however. That was Griff's task. He had failed Prince Rhaegar once. He would not fail his son, not whilst life remained in his body. And that's kind of, that's kind of a really grim quote from a guy who loved Rhaegar and apparently loves young Griff, who he thinks is Rhaegar's son. He would not fail him while, lights, while life remained in his body. And this is something that I find really interesting about Rhaegar as a character. He was a beloved figure in Westeros. A quote from Cersei um, says that even in the Westerlands, the, the prince got more cheers from the crowds than Ares and Tywin combined. He had this uh, habit of quality of person and reputation that inspired others in really remarkable and different ways. You know, dreams of saviors against the darkness, a new king that would save the realm from strife, a husband and a father to a perfect brood of children, a best friend worth dying for. All these things that people think about Rhaegar, and yet we know from these POVs that very few knew Rhaegar at all. What was truly in his heart, what he really wanted, what he was after. The prince held his plans and goals tight to his chest, not even telling those who considered him their best friends 
what he was really doing or what he was after. That hasn't stopped people, though, from thinking they knew the real man and doing everything and everything to try and honor his memory in their own sometimes horrific ways. It's not going to be good. The devotion they felt is to like, it's almost like he's a magic pixie, like dream girl kind of character, except it's Rhaegar, where there's there's this like widespread conception of who he was. And then we hear from Aemon and we see from the House of the Undying when when uh, talking with Daenerys or talking past Daenerys. I'm not really sure what was happening there, that he's clearly a very different person. What he wanted and what he was after is so diverged from what some of these characters think about him. It's almost like um, Rhaegar had a very, very good act or a public face that disguised the um, real person beneath. And I'm not even sure if it was an act like he could have been just a genuinely good person, but he felt like maybe a sense of duty to the realm or something like that. Oh, yeah. Mary says depressive pixie dream boy. Yeah, kind of. I can see that. Yeah, true guilty undertaker. Rhaegar didn't and couldn't love Jacon as Jacon loved him. And that extends to a lot of characters. There's quite a lot of people that really, really loved Rhaegar and he did not feel the same way back. But if for some reason, it didn't really dissuade them. He was just such a an amazing person by all accounts that nobody really cared that what what he wanted or who he wanted to the point that he inspires confusion to this day throughout Westeros about why he even picked Elia and then why he picked Lyanna. Those things are wildly diverged and many characters throughout the book spend a lot of page time, honestly, going like, yeah, what was he doing? I don't really know. Why did why Elia of everyone like Rhaegar could have had anybody in the kingdoms, presumably. And then again, like why Lyanna? Cersei thinks about that a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of projection onto Rhaegar. Um, it may have also been contrasted with Ares. Ares was such a terrible king and such a bad person that Ares, by comparison, just seems awesome. Uh, Laura Seven Anon chat says, "I don't understand how people have such a reverence for him when yet it's widely accepted he raped and murdered, murdered Lyanna." Well, that's accepted among Robert's side. Um, the Targaryen loyalists, which is most of the POVs we see from, plus Cersei. But Cersei is a very different person. Um, and Jamie, who actually seemed to know the guy, they seem to understand that this, that story was probably untrue. Viserys in particular tells Daenerys that um, nobody on their side believed that. That um, it was love that inspired him. So even Ned himself in his inner POV, he doesn't seem to harbor any anger at Rhaegar for his actions. And that seems, I think that's, is indicative that those that were sort of in the know um, understood that what happened there was not uh, the story that Robert has had everybody saying. So I think the, the first one we wanted to go into, and uh, I was actually posting this about Twitter and we were talking about it in my Slack, and that is Cersei's relationship to Rhaegar. And then this is something that um, that did not get put into the show at all. They basically removed this. Um, from her plot line and her PO and well, she doesn't have a POV, but it almost never comes up. And that is a few characters think of Rhaegar more often and with greater passion than the Dowager Queen Cersei herself. It is near constant throughout a feast for crows and a dance with dragons that Cersei is almost never stopping thinking about Rhaegar and the life lost and her affections for him. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit and like where that comes from and how it influenced her. Um, 
In particular, I wrote a theory many moons ago about how Rhaegar is seeing, uh, how Cersei is seeing Rhaegar everywhere in a feast for Anna, feast for crows and a dance of dragons, titled, let me grab this one, because I thought it was funny. It's called It's Raining Rhaegar's Hallelujah, It's Raining Rhaegar's. I uh, posted that one in the chat. And it's essentially going through and listing all, at least some of the ways that um, Cersei really wants Rhaegar to come back from the dead. And in particular, that she views her life as a failure almost or a life gone wrong without him. And that's pretty strange because when you look back at her POV and you look at the timeline for when this happened, it started when she was about six or seven years old. Uh, Cersei dreamed of marrying Rhaegar and was just like swooning over his good looks and heart playing. And in particular, this was encouraged by Tywin. Tywin at this time uh, knew that Rhaegar was unmarried, but Tywin had this idea that the unmarried Rhaegar would be the perfect match for Cersei in order to join the, the Lannisters and the Targaryens together as a permanent alliance. At this time, there was not quite the feud going on that later emerged between Ares and, and Tywin. So he really played up in his young daughter's mind that the prince would eventually be her husband and that she would be queen of the Seven Kingdoms. A lot of the ambition and the entitlement you see from Cersei is literally from this. It is from Rhaegar and it's from Tywin and Tywin assuring Cersei that not only was she the best, she would marry the best man in the Seven Kingdoms, a.k.a. Rhaegar. But what's clear from her POV, though, is that she didn't actually know him. The age gap was significant. Uh, I believe when he showed up for the feast, he was 19 and she was like seven. So you can imagine as a 19 year old trying to talk to like a six or seven year old who's clearly swooning over you. There's not a lot of there can't be anything there. There wouldn't be for almost 10 years, but it's that impression that she had of him that ended up coloring her uh, perception of the silver prince the rest of her life. Yeah. She wanted those silver, <laughs> silver, golden hair babies. That's true. Hey, Stephanie, Frederick, how's it going? Um, imagining a ghost style Rhaegar Cersei sex scene. Now I don't want to imagine that. Thanks, Mary. Uh, so there's, as I said, it was inflamed by Tywin, who planned to wed her to Rhaegar and seal the Targaryen Lannister alliance with blood. Um, later, it would be different kind of blood, but um, at first, it was just marriage. I have this quote here, and one thing that I'm struck by, and other people are as well, is the degree that Cersei thinks about Rhaegar. It's almost like it's almost like the devotion you see from. Um, teenage girls and preteen girls with pop stars and that may be what george was drawing on for the inspiration here especially with his connections to music so here's the quote many a night she had watched prince rhaegar in the hall playing his silver stringed harp with those long elegant fingers of his had any man ever been so beautiful he was more than a man though his blood was the blood of old valyria the blood of dragons and gods when she was just a little girl, her father had promised her that she would marry Rhaegar. She could not have been more than six or seven. Never speak of a child, he had told her, smiling his secret smile that only Cersei ever saw. By the way, I don't want to see Tywin smile. I don't even want that. That sounds terrifying. Not until his grace agrees to the betrothal. It must remain our secret for now. And so it had. Though she had once drawn a picture of herself flying behind Rhaegar on a dragon, her arms wrapped tight about his chest. 
When Jamie had discovered it, she told him it was Queen Alicene and King Jaehaerys. Yeah, she <laughs> that's a good point. She's writing fanfics. Uh, she's writing fanfics. Um, she watches him on stage, like almost like he's a pop star. She he's almost like he's not a real person. It's this idealized version of life, which that kind of stuff happens. Unfortunately, that seemed to carry over until later in her life. She never really let that one go. Uh, you guys are actually one. I'm about to get to this. Um, so the timing is interesting because it seems like um, people really think that like the true love is between Cersei and Jamie. However, from Cersei's POV, her first choice was and always Rhaegar. Uh, here's the quote for that. Next to Rhaegar, even her beautiful Jamie had seemed no more than a callow boy. The prince is going to be my husband. She had thought giddy with excitement. When the old king dies, I'll be the queen. Her aunt had confided that truth to her before the tourney. You must be especially beautiful, Lady Jenna told her, fussing with her jests. For at the final feast, it shall be announced that you and Prince Rhaegar are betrothed. And given the timing, and we learn later that Jamie and Cersei started doing their weird twincess thing when she was around seven or eight, it may be that Cersei's rejection by Ares, which she took personally, like she she felt it was from Rhaegar in the, in weird ways that it may be in response to that, that she started becoming more interested in Jamie, especially when she was already at a very young age thinking about marriage and having a husband and that kind of stuff. It's like she went from one guy that was unattainable to another guy who was unattainable, except this one she could get in Jamie. It's also telling the quote from earlier where it said Jamie discovered it. When Jamie had discovered it, she told him it was Queen Alysanne and King Jaehaerys. And this is something I wondered about is how much is Jamie aware of Cersei's enormous crush on Rhaegar and has that kind of colored their relationship that he knows that if she had the choice, it would not be him that she that he knows it would be Rhaegar if Cersei could have anybody in the world alive or dead. And I wonder if. If that fueled some of Jamie's decision making when it came to their children and how much he was willing to be out in the open about Cersei. I mean, it was it would be dangerous to let everyone know you were cuckolding the king and all that other kind of stuff. But he really didn't have any kind of role in his children's life. And it, I think there is some kind of argument that you could make that the the understanding that he is second best could have influenced that. Maybe he never let it go. Yeah, true uh, guilty undertaker. Jamie and Cersei both have secrets from each other. Jamie never seemed to have told Cersei the truth about why he killed Ares. Yeah, I would I would guess though it would be hard for Cersei to hide her enormous crush on Rhaegar. And this this idea continued um, into her marriage with Robert, in that there there was many, many, many problems in their marriage. But from Cersei's perspective, one of the chief ones is that Robert was not Rhaegar and that it from her POV, even her when she bashes uh, Jamie in favor of Rhaegar, it seems that she never would have been happy with anyone but him. And there's a quote here. The wrong man came back from the trident. The queen would sometimes think as he was plowing her. Ugh. In the first few years, when he mounted her more often, she would close her eyes and pretend he was Rhaegar. And there's other there's other quotes to that effect where Cersei is essentially um, thinking, wow, I really hated being Robert's wife, but I really hated also not being Rhaegar's wife. Good point from Mary. Are seven year olds capable of hiding crushes? I would argue no, especially not from their twin. 
at that age. And there's this, there's this kind of running line of logic in Cersei's chapters that if she had gotten married to Rhaegar, all would have turned out fine in the world. And that includes herself. She kind of directly, she kind of indirectly blames her current state and behavior on that life being denied from her, that she is not Rhaegar's wife. Here's, here's a quote on that. Your father proposed the match, Lady Jenner told her, but Ares refused to hear of it. You are my most able servant, Tywin, the king had said, but a man does not marry his heir to his servant's daughter. Dry those tears, little one. Have you ever seen a lion weep? Your father will find another man for you, a better man than Rhaegar. Her aunt had lied, though, and her father had failed her, just as Jamie was failing her now. Father found no better man and said, he gave me Robert, and Maggie's curse bloomed like some poisonous flower. If only, if she had only married Rhaegar as the gods intended, he would have never looked twice at the wolf girl. Rhaegar would be our king today, and I would be his queen, the mother of his sons. And this is the kind of logic you also see with like, uh, with Barristan Selmy, um, actually John Connington as well, where Rhaegar's actions and the events of Robert's Rebellion are being internalized as guilt and rage by characters that really had nothing to do with it. Like, for instance, Cersei's indirectly blaming Elia for Rhaegar running off with Lyanna and that <laughs> essentially saying she's so much better than Elia that if Rhaegar was married to her, well, he never would have stepped out on her. He never would have done that. Yeah, it's it's it is it is pretty nuts. Especially this also indirectly is a way of putting removing blame from herself, especially in these chapters as to what she's doing, because, well, she never she didn't get her silver prince. She didn't get Rhaegar. The true life, the ones that God intended has been taken from her. So it's a way of making herself a victim and not really owning up to the what has happened in her life and the things she's she's responsible for. Uh, Yeah, Dornish Dame. This is also something that comes up in Kevin's uh, epilogue chapter that he also has this idea that if Cersei had married Rhaegar, he wouldn't have gone off with Lyanna, which again, just shows like a fundamental understanding probably of Rhaegar's character that it doesn't. There's quite a lot of people that seem to think it was a fault on Elia's part that Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna. That doesn't. That's something that gets repeated a lot by characters, but it doesn't really seem to be true. Um, it's, it's very narcissistic. It's an extremely troubling thought line from Cersei in that, (laughs) that the world has wronged her and that if she could just put things right, then all the problems would go away. That like somehow all of reality hinges on Cersei's marriage. It's pretty, pretty not great. Um, and she also brought up here Maggie the frog, and this is an important part of uh, Cersei's characterization in Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. Uh, in her youth, Cersei vis- visited the woods witch Maggie the Frog in an attempt to learn her future with her friend Malara. Now, the first question <laughs> that Cersei asks is, of course, Rhaegar. She asked, when will I wed the prince? Maggie responds, never, you will wed the king. Cersei says, I will be the queen, though. Maggie says, I, queen you shall be until, until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all you hold dear. 
at the time, Cersei was confused about it because when she said the prince, she meant Rhaegar. Cersei, I mean, Maggie comes back and says, no, you were with the king. Cersei goes, oh, well, I guess that just means Rhaegar will become king when we wed, which means Aerys will die soon. Neat. Incorrect on that one. Um, Maggie successfully predicts that um, Cersei will marry King Robert Baratheon. And then she goes on to make a bunch of other specific predictions. She talks about how Malar is going to die later that night or very soon. I think it actually is that night that Cersei and Robert will have no children together. Uh, how many children Robert will have, how many children Cersei will have. Um, some of it hasn't come to pass yet. But over time, it became clear that Cersei has internalized that Maggie was right. And it kind of drags her to more and more extreme actions to avoid, to avoid the Valonqar and the uh, younger, more beautiful person, as well as the death of her children. It doesn't seem like she believed that at the time, though. So, for instance, one of the prophecies is that she would wed the king and then she and the king would never have a child together. Well, if she had just had a child with Robert, she would have disproved this entire prophecy and avoided everything. Yeah, bad one on that. Andrea's Peril says, for Cersei, it wasn't about being queen to rule of people. It was about being queen, wielding all the power. Yeah, it, it doesn't even seem like she really loved Rhaegar. It's she loved the life she would have if she was married to him. And I guess she had this perception that he would just like play the harp all the time. I, I don't really know. And it, this kind of shows that her pers her pursuit of Rhaegar has actually in a weird way gotten her closer to his real character because of how much we know that Rhaegar is was fueled by prophecy. Um, the story from Barrison about how he read a scroll and decided he'd become a warrior. His uh, letters with Aemon saying much the same thing. Un unint like unintentionally, by trying to make sure she got Rhaegar and learning the future of it, she like fell down the same path as him of receiving prophecy, believing it, and then trying to make it happen to disastrous results. And it's like this, you, you can really wonder what would Cersei's life had been like had Tywin never told her that she would marry Rhaegar or that she had never gone to see Maggie the Frog. It, it seems like the two are linked, that her, her crush on Rhaegar and her belief that she would become his queen and do all these wonderful things was fueled by Tywin. And that led her to go see Maggie the Frog because she was so concerned about it not happening. Nicola Jerkin says, is prophecy turning Cersei into a mad queen? It is certainly clouding her judgment. Her belief that Tyrion is the Valonqar and is coming to kill her is fueled by this one event, which comes from trying to get Rhaegar. And the younger, more beautiful queen, the way she treats Marjorie is again in reaction to Maggie the Frog. It, it's certainly like driving her decision making in a really troubling way. <laughs> uh, Viserys says, wow, it's almost like a young girl who's denied her true ambitions because of her sex, told a prophecy, then uses a broodmare may have negative impacts on a young girl. Yeah, um, in a way, you can sort of see a, a comparison between uh, Viserys and Tywin and Danny and Cersei in this way, especially with their relationship to prophecy and how it fuels their decision making. Where this gets to with the winds of winter and where the story is going, and that is in particular how Cersei reacts to the character known as Orain Waters. You know, lots of characters have crushes and long dead romances. So like, why does Cersei's matter in particular? Like, why is it worth focusing on? Well, it's because unlike a lot of other characters, Cersei's not only actively trying to see Rhaegar and the people around her, she's acting on those connections with her power. Case in point, Orain Waters. Orain Waters is a bastard of House Valarion, and he doesn't look like Rhaegar. I mean, 
he only like vaguely resembles him in the sense that they both have Valyrian blood. Um, Cersei later comments after their interactions, he is not half as comely as Rhaegar was. His face is too narrow and he has that cleft in his chin. The Valyrians come from old Valyrian stock and however, and some had the same silvery hair as the dragon kings of old. And when they first meet, Cersei gets super hot for a rain. Um, and she really, she sees Rhaegar come again in Warren. He's not really an impressive guy. He doesn't have a lot going for him, but the mere resemblance of Rhaegar is enough to take Orain and promote him to one of the most powerful men in the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, he, she promotes him to Master of Ships and then Grand Admiral has her construct the Royal Fleet, which, by the way, he ends up just leaving with to become a pirate king. And there's no real sense that he in any way deserves any of that. Cersei is just promoting him because she likes having anybody around her that looks like Rhaegar in like a very superficial way. Like there's no, there's no correlation between their character. There's no correlation between how they behave. It is literally just that he looks like Rhaegar. And uh, there's a quote here from Jamie when they're talking about who should be Grand Admiral. He says Paxter Redwine would be a better choice. He commands the largest fleet in Westeros. Orain Waters could command a skiff, but only if you bought him one. <laughs> Saying essentially that Orain Waters is an unimpressive, terrible person that should not be master of ships if you expect him to be effective in any way. Essentially calling Cersei out for making a a pick of counselor that is very, very stupid, which it is. You should not promote people to high power because they look like the guy you have a crush on. So the question becomes, so this is something that George has introduced for us as readers. He wants us to know that if Cersei gets even a hint of Rhaegar in a character or somebody, that she will become almost um, illogical about her reactions to them. And that is interesting because... There are a lot of characters on their way to Cersei right now that are very, very like Rhaegar, or at least they look like him. Um, so you have the big ones. You have uh, Lysona Omar, who's the spy master of the Golden Company. Orain Waters is still out there. She's, she's a little mad at him now that, she's, that he stole the fleet, but still that affection for being Rhaegar-ish remains. An unusual one is Gerald Dane. Uh, Gerald Dane has the, he has a streak of uh of black hair in his in his uh valyrian silvery hair kind of thing but it's he does have those high valyrian features and if cersei met him she might again considering orain does not look like rhaegar she might look at gerald dane and say wow you also look like rhaegar and that might influence her reaction to him but the biggest one by far the biggest one is of course young griff the supposed son of rhaegar targaryen when his blue hair is washed out he absolutely does have the Valyrian look that's maybe part of the re- I mean you don't have to believe that he's truly Aegon Targaryen to know that he definitely has the look and that and that Cersei will be told that he is Rhaegar's son oh yeah slam that like button if you could we got 184 people watching hello everybody get to 150 put on a cool hat now it's not just that he also looks like Rhaegar and that the Golden Company will be pushing forward the idea that he is. Varys and Illyrio have specifically gone out of their way to acquire for Griff a wardrobe of a Targaryen colors and are marketing him. We see this in um, the Kevin Lannister epilogue specifically to emphasize the point that he is Rhaegar's son, whether he is or not. They're going to use his appearance 
and essentially just good marketing to make sure that when people see young Griff, they will think Rhaegar. I actually wrote another post about this. Um, I called it, let me post it in the chat. I called it Aegon's Epic Loot. And in that, in that theory from a few years ago, I speculated that if they really want to play up the fact that young Griff is very, very similar to, to Rhaegar, well, one way they could do it would be through Rhaegar's armor. There's nothing in the books that tells you what happened to Rhaegar's armor after he died, just that the breastplate was caved in. His body was taken and it was cremated in the Targaryen way. George said that in response to somebody like, what happened to his body? He was burned like all Targaryens are. But the armor, nobody knows what happened to that. It hasn't been mentioned anywhere in the books. So it's one of those things that could be up for grabs. Maybe something that Varys and Illyrio acquired over the years and squirreled away and just fix the breastplate so it's not caved in anymore. And dressing young Griff in Rhaegar's armor and having him march on King's Landing, that could be something that's extremely, extremely powerful for, for the Golden Company, but also have a massive effect on Cersei's psyche. As I said, with Orin, this is a guy that is extremely dissimilar from Rhaegar, but then you have somebody that is claiming to be Rhaegar's son, someone that looks like him, someone that is wearing, maybe wearing his armor, wearing his sigil, her reaction to seeing him, maybe something like, uh, like Renly's ghost that happened in King's Landing. And it may, depending on her state of mind, like on one level, it may just, it may just shock her, but on, on a completely other level, it may like actually scare her that Rhaegar is coming again and that he's coming to kill her. That would be pretty nuts. Well, Morley with another super chat, uh, $20. Thank you again, Morley. That's super generous uh, for the hat. Yeah, <laughs> uh, 42 to go. Oh, good point in the chat from Lemmy B. Also wielding Blackfire. That's another thing. A lot of people think that Illyrio and Varys have been hiding the sword Blackfire. If you arm him with Blackfire, you dress, you dress him in Rhaegar's armor and have him march at the head of an army. Whether or not he's really Rhaegar or not, everyone's going to think he is, especially the way they're pushing that as a marketing tool, as a propaganda tool. And wh what would happen if Cersei and Young Griff actually had to treat with each other, if they had to parley or parlay? I can imagine that would be super fascinating from Cersei's side as she tries to deal with the very real threat of this Young Griff person trying to dethrone her, but also the enormous affection and infatuation she still has with the dead man Rhaegar Targaryen. Uh, yeah, good call, uh, Aaron. Uh, Aegon's crown. Um, the Dornish may have Aegon the Conqueror's crown. Uh, it was lost when Daron the Young Dragon was killed in Dorne and hasn't been seen again. It may be that uh, Duran may offer the crown of the Conqueror to Young Griff if Aryan says he's legit. The plan may have been to give it to Viserys, but. It's one of those things that like one of the things that disappeared into Dornish Sands. It's the the armor and the uh, the crown of Daron, but also also Rainey's Rainey's also disappeared. But that's a, that's a different thing. But I, I think more important, well, not more important, but in addition to the fact that young Griff will in every way look like Rhaegar on purpose, it's also that there's a whole bunch of Rhaegar lookalikes or Valyrian lookalikes that are going to be showing up in King's Landing at pretty much at the same time or be around there. And how this might feed into Cersei's paranoia and, and really affect her decision making. Morley wants to know, oh, 
uh, who still has, who has Dark Sister? Blood Raven took it to the wall with him. Uh, Ashe and Aziz from History of Westeros. They asked George R. R. Martin that at a convention somewhere. And George said that he was allowed to take it with him to the wall. Uh, most people think that the, the Dark Sister's probably in the cave and that we might see it during uh, George's version of Hold the Door. Maybe, um, maybe Hodor will pick it up or maybe um, Mirror Reed. Mirror Reed. Oh, God damn it. Um, yeah, it may just be sitting innocuously in Blood Raven's cave and they pick it up on their way out to protect themselves. So, yeah, th- that's one way that Rhaegar's going to come back from the dead in a very real way that's going to impact the winds of winter. The like all these Rhaegar lookalikes and, and Cersei's reaction to them is going to be something to watch. Um, the other one, another character I want to talk about um, is uh, Barrison Selmy. So I talked about this in my Barrison episode with Tony Teflon that uh, Barrison finds himself in his chapters thinking almost constantly about Rhaegar as well and Ares and his conception of what Rhaegar was doing and Barrison's role in that. He has similar feelings of guilt. Like, um, some have speculated that maybe he did not try his hardest against Rhaegar, and that in a parallel to the turning at White Walls, the entire joust was fixed for for Rhaegar to win. That ended up not working out at White Walls. Who knows what actually was going to happen at the turning at Harrenhal. There's some hints that uh, Barrison feels he was a great jouster, and you know, Rhaegar is called a great imperialist warrior, but we also know that in history, um, we see in Duncan Egg and we see in other examples, and also with the Hands Tourney, that when a member of the royal family enters a joust, no one will actually try that hard at unseating them or beating them in the melee for fear of injuring or offending them, especially not the King's Guard. That was something that um, Baylor Breakspear took advantage of in the trial by seven that by positioning himself and members of his family against the Kingsguard, he ensured that they would win the fight because the Kingsguard are sworn not to harm the royal family. So there is. It has been a theory for some time that Barrison did a similar thing, that maybe the Kingsguard was commanded to let Rhaegar win or just did not try their hardest again because you don't want to be the guy that accidentally kills the crown prince. Uh, Guilty Undertaker says Valar Targaryen was a great jouster too, but only because no one would strike him. Right. If you have a perfect record because nobody's trying, then are you actually great? It's also one of those things where Gregar is called a great warrior, but he had never been in a fight. He had never been in a, any kind of battle as far as we know um, before Robert's Rebellion. So those things are kind of hard to judge. And... This is this is a theory that I think I don't know if Brendan Beefish came up with it, but that's where I heard it from the first. And that is uh, Barristan Turncloak. And this gets tied into young Griff, Rhaegar and Danny as well. And that's the idea that Barristan is extremely, extremely wary of Danny becoming like Ares come again. He is basically traumatized by his role in Ares's Kingsguard and and then his role in Robert's Kingsguard and enabling what he considers bad or immoral kings. And he's really on the lookout for these things, whether, I just want to, like I said during the stream, whether or not Barristan is right about what Danny is becoming or who she is, what matters is his perception of her. And if he starts seeing from his POV, too much of Danny and her father when she returns from the Dothraki Sea with the dragons embracing fire and blood, maybe horror she, um, she unleashes on the slavers, he may find himself in a moral quandary where he does not want to serve a person like that anymore. 
And that's where young Griff comes in. This is again, Barrison, much like Cersei thought extremely highly of Rhaegar and had he a choice between Viserys, Rhaegar and Danny, if they were all alive, it's pretty clear that Barrison would be serving Rhaegar. Um, that would be his choice among Ares's children. So if he has, if he starts doubting Danny and thinking she might be a threat in a, in a large way, and maybe the Mad King come again, again, not if she actually is, again, if Barrison thinks she is, would he turn cloak and join young Griff in a way that he regrets he did not do before? He really regrets not exercising moral values and in, in, um, in his service of the previous two kings. So that's a way that Rhaegar could continue to rear his head almost in the winds of winter that is kind of divorced from him as a person. It's again, this ideal of Rhaegar and the idea of who he is that just young Griff looking like Rhaegar and saying he is could have enormous impacts in the story. Uh, Ezekiel Izan says uh, Barrison could be one of Danny's betrayals. He could be. Um, that is basically the theory. One of the three betrayals that is still coming. Um, <laughs> yes, Aaron Barrison does suck. Uh, before we get to the next two, I thought I'd pull some questions I took from uh, early on. Uh, so one here from uh, Maester Mary. Uh, she asks, she asked this in the uh, Joe Magician Slack. She says, well, I paraphrased. Mary had many thoughts. She asked, what was in the Winterfell crypts from Rhaegar? And I'll be getting to John in a little bit, but it's a this is a persistent fan theory that John in some way will learn the truth of his parentage from the Winterfell crypts. That there may be some item in Lyanna Stark's tomb that informs him that yes, Rhaegar is actually his father, or some some uh measure of proof there's different ideas about it um i've heard dragon eggs i've heard rhaegar's harp i've heard um the wedding cloak that liana may have worn which would have the targaryen sigil on it um i've heard uh the targaryen signet ring i guess rhaegar had one with like uh with four dragons on it um <laughs> my heart theory is amazing says so i Jordy Jedi. Yes, everyone says that about their Winterfell Crypt theories. Um, I believe there's also a story from King Arthur where um, in that's how Lancelot found out about his true parentage. Down in the crypts, there was like a tablet or something that said it. Um, I believe Lady Gwyn from Weary of Westeros would know that better than I do. Um, so what do I think is in the Winterfell Crypts from Rhaegar? This is a tough one because a lot of these ideas are really cool. Oh, I'm sorry. There's also been ideas that it would be a maybe Aegon the Conqueror's crown or something like that, or some sort of Targaryen crown that was meant for Rhaegar. Um, that that Elia, I mean, that Lyanna was in Dorne, and that the Dorners seemed okay with that seems to indicate that maybe that could be a thing. Um, I tend to think that the only thing in Lyanna's tomb is Lyanna's body. That I don't think Ned would want to give away anything about Lyanna and include anything of Rhaegar's if he could. And also it maybe it would just be like a memory to her. If there was anything, I maybe it would just be like blue flowers or something like that, like a bunch of dead blue flowers, especially because Ned had to travel back across Westeros 
with a baby that he just brought back from Dorne, where he found his sister, who was kidnapped by Rhaegar uh, Targaryen, according to the story. So, I don't know. Would he really like like stash some item away in order to make sure that when he buries Lyanna in the crypts that she has some token of Rhaegar's affection? I think if he was free to do so, he would, but he was kind of like under duress while he was doing this. Uh, the best one I've heard for how you could pull this off would be the Targaryen signet ring because it's so small that you could conceal it much like egg in his boot. That's he, that's how he uses his own signet ring. Sorry, Mary. <laughs> oh, she had, she had to leave. I forgot about that, but yeah, I, I tend to think that the, if there's anything in there, it'll probably be the signet ring. Maybe some rose roses would probably be the most likely, um, like some dead winter roses or something like that, but mostly just Liana's bones. I forget oh, who wrote the signet ring theory. It was um, Natalie something. I forget her username, but it was a really good theory. I liked it. Definitely not dragon eggs. Definitely not something big and bulky. Uh, let's grab another question here from from uh, patrons. Eric F asks, how is Rhaegar remembered in Dorne? Um, and this is kind of related that when you look at the, the POVs from the Dornish, none of them are upset about. Um, absolutely none of them. Are upset at Rhaegar. Very almost all their anger is at the Lannisters. They there is some sort of like being unhappy that he took a second wife, but he was he and Liana were in Dorne for a significant amount of time. And as we as we're shown in the um in a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons, Dorne is not a big place when you have gossip. The fact that the Crown Prince and Liana Stark, the ones who were running from a civil war were in Dorne would absolutely be known by the Martells. It has to be. There's no way you hide that. So the fact that they allowed it means that they, that they, well, Dorne has a different idea of sexuality uh, for sure. And they may have a different conception of the idea of a paramour. Maybe that's how they understood his relationship to Liana. Like, um, it's pretty normal in Dorne for characters to take multiple lovers. That's not that weird. So how is he remembered in Dorne? I think they remember him a bit sadly. They, they're upset at how the war ended. They're upset at how Ellie and her children died. But they're not, they're not furious about it like Robert. They're, and for instance, like Prince Duran is very willing to work with the Targaryens again. He makes the secret pact for Viserys. He's perfectly willing to work with young Griff, who purports to be the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. So I think their, bla- their bad blood is mostly with the Lannisters and the Baratheons and not so much Rhaegar and the Targaryens. Super chat here from uh, Jay Sheth. Which character, according to you, was close in their perception of Rhaegar? Uh, Jamie or Arthur Dane? Uh, Arthur Dane uh, was Rhaegar's closest friend. I would guess that Arthur would know a lot more about him. But I think Jamie's perception of Rhaegar is probably closer to the real person, much more than like someone like Cersei. Um, Barrison has a, has a very um, skewed version of Rhaegar as well. He seems to not really get him. The story about him reading the scrolls and becoming a warrior, um, sort of not really understanding what he was like, uh, what Rhaegar was upset about, that kind of thing. Arthur Dane, I think of the characters that we know of probably had the closest measure of him. Everyone thinks that he and Rhaegar were the closest. Any sort of the idea of prophecy or what he was doing with Lyanna, I would guess that uh, Arthur Dane would know 
But Jamie seems to have a more well understood view of him. Let's see here. Dornish are ultra pissed because the Lannisters switched on the plans. Yeah, kind of. It's not like the Dornish were going to not have their heirs to the Iron Throne anymore. Their, their marriage were still intact up until, you know, like the actual rebellion part. Yeah, he had his wedding there. That's where they hid. That's where Arthur Dane was from. It's, it's hard for me to believe that Doran Martell and Oberyn would know that Rhaegar had run away to Dorne, was hiding there with Lyanna, and done nothing about it if they were truly, truly angry about it. So, yeah, especially their idea of um, paramours, their looser idea of sexuality, and also the Targaryen, um, the Valyrian past of having multiple wives. They would probably be in a position to more understand that what Rhaegar may have been doing. Let's see here. Uh, do you think uh, Liet Rubenfield's Liet? 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 Rubenfield, uh, Rubenfeld, I'm sorry. Do you think uh, Dane is alive? No, uh, Arthur Dane is next level dead. So is Rhaegar. Um, but I do find it really interesting. The, uh, the corn half hand and the man's raider, uh, comparisons that people often make between the characters. And it's that they are very similar. Like Mance is definitely supposed to be a stand in for Rhaegar and John's life. The heart playing the, the scarlet cloak, um, the idea of being like sort of like a rebellious king figure, somebody that was trying to create a coalition, all that other kind of stuff seems to match up perfectly well with Rhaegar's character. And I think that's George's way of reintroducing Rhaegar characterization without having somebody to remember directly all these interactions. It's a way of showing, not telling, you know, same for Arthur Dane. Uh, with Corrin Halfhand, I can believe that Corrin is very similar to Arthur Dane in character. And I also love the idea that George would make up two characters that are supposed to be stand-ins for these two people that were uh, very influential in John's, in John's coming to be, but not actually interacting with them. I think in other fantasy stories, I think that could definitely be true. I don't think George is doing that though. Oh, super chat here from uh, shade of the evening, $3. My first time on live stream, just a little love. Hey, thank you so much. That's very generous of you. Let's grab another question here. Actually uh, from the super chat, Jay chef, they asked on YouTube. Uh, this is a topic close to my heart. I love Rhaegar. I believe Rhaegar was trying to figure out his place in the story. And this led to reading a lot as a kid and then real and then to him realizing he needed to become a warrior in order to fulfill his potential. My question related to the crown prince was what was the manifestation of dichotomy of Rhaegar being loved by the common folk of the realm, yet no one knew Rhaegar, his inner world among nobility. How did this happen? <laughs> this is sort of the idea of being kind of a celebrity. I am in no way a celebrity. I'm a very minor theorist and streamer and YouTuber and a very, very niche part of the world. But even I get people that think they know me very well from, um, from seeing these sort of things when this is like a very small snapshot of my life. And for Rhaegar, the similar sort of thing can happen where your public, ex your, your public perception and the way you behave is much more important for what people think about you than what you actually are on the inside. Like Rhaegar is not really going to be one. Most people would not be the one to go around and just proclaim their plans and their most innermost desires to the rest of the world. Like, that's not really his job. That's not really his duty in being the crown prince. His job is to try and, well, he perceives his job is to be a, uh, a kind, just, well-liked king, presumably in some sense, probably to bind the realm for whatever was coming 
with the Knights King and the others, which again, the reason you make you believe in prophecy to create Azor High is because you think the end of the world is coming. So Rhaegar unlike took a, a different approach to that kind of thing. But like Stannis would never understand the idea of how Rhaegar was trying to um, endear himself to everybody. That is not what he would do. But it's certainly a valid way of doing it. And much like Ned, people are still pining for Rhaegar and they're still acting loyal to him years after his death. So it, it's it's that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Slam, slam that like button. We're at 127 likes, 150. I uh, got that wizard hat ready to go. Yeah. Wheezy Squeezebox says Rhaegar did masquerade as a street, a street musician. I like that about him. Yeah, that that is a very telling part of his personality that it was not all an act. He was not trying to get people to like him because he just wanted power. There seems to be a genuine caring of his personality about the people he was going to rule and that he wanted to get to know them. But yeah, I am, I am aware of (laughs) how it can happen where a public perception does not match, does not match your, your inner perception of yourself in my own very, very small way. (laughs) Let's see here. So we got an hour left to go. Got about half the script. Uh, well, not script as an outline. And I'll take a few questions, then we'll go back to it, and then we'll finish off with some more questions. Let's see here. So let's grab another one from uh, from YouTube. Um, uh, Flinted Steel asked, how do you think Cersei would react to Fagon due to her idealizing his father so much? I could see an alliance being made after Tommen's death and Danny's landing. I think it's going to be a really tough moment for Cersei where would she really want to get revenge on somebody that reminds her so heavily of Rhaegar, but she would also know that this would not be Rhaegar. This is supposedly Elia's Elia's son. And if she wanted to hurt him, that may be the part of her, of his character and his supposed lineage that she focuses on. But I, I think her reaction to him, it will be one of the most fascinating in the winds of winter. We already have the example of Orion Waters, as I said, so we can use that almost as a template that whatever she thinks about Fagon and what he's doing, it will it will be colored by her relationship to Rhaegar, and she will not be able to stop herself from seeing her dead silver prince in this kid. Oh, another super chat here from uh, Shay of the Evening. Uh, $5, again, super generous. Thank you so much. Who talked Ares into going to Harrenhal, or did he just decide if it was Varys? Uh, don't understand why. Help me remember it messed up Rhaegar's plans. Um, so, I bl- people blame Varys, but they also blame his quote-unquote lickspittle lords, which is the um, the lords that were taking advantage of Ares's corruption and his um, his inability to rule the realm to essentially enrich themselves. It's why they would do it is that Rhaegar, even though for I think for most people, Rhaegar's king would be a serious upgrade over Ares, that doesn't mean it's the same for everybody. Like when you see with uh, corrupt bad rulers, even in the real world, they still have their supporters and they don't want to see those guys go because it will remove their place of power next to the king. So that would be that would be my understanding that it is those that were trying to protect their own position within Ares's administration, basically. And, you know, a lot of people love the idea of a reformer and someone that's going to set everything right and come through and be really good for the realm. But, you know, that doesn't mean everybody. The people that are going to be reformed out of their position would be unhappy about it. 
uh, Dolorous Ray on Twitter. They asked, is their vision about Rhaegar romanticized? If so, do you think that is because his own nature and more related to the portrait of a perfect prince he seems to fit into Westeros society? Is this magnified for Aerys II flaws? I think, it's, I think it's multiple things. I talked about earlier how I think Aerys' comparison to Rhaegar makes him seem way better than he may have been. But it, it also is definitely that Rhaegar, after reading that scroll, and we know that he wanted, he thought he was the savior of the world, and that his, then he was uh, convinced his children would be instead, that he very clearly was trying as a strategy to enact or solidify Westeros in a way that they could defeat the darkness that was coming. So I, th- I think that is definitely part of it, along with his comparisons to Ares. That Rhaegar was like, for instance, we know that Rhaegar was not actually by nature a warrior or a jouster or a fighter. That's not who he was when he was young. It was joked that he um, that Rayella, I think, had uh, swallowed a book while she was pregnant. He was bookish. He was uh, the kind of kid that was into magic and prophecy. He loved spending all of his time in the library. Then he read the scroll and then he totally changed his life. So it's definitely an act by Rhaegar, but seemingly one born out of perhaps a feeling of loyalty or duty to the common people. Otherwise, if if he truly was like just like a power obsessed weirdo who was trying to use prophecy to become like some dark version of like a me or the cruel come again, I don't think he would have waited as long as he did. He was clearly trying to have a transition of power from Ares to him that that did not include a civil war and did not involve him killing his father. That kind of thing. Oh, a super chat here again from uh, Jay Sheth. Do you think Rhaegar helped common folk during excursions to Summerhall privately? It seems his mo- his modus operandi or through networks of close allies. I would guess based on the um, the musician thing that Rhaegar would try to disguise himself and just be kind to people or just mix among them, kind of like Egg did in his youth. But that would be again, that would be kind of hard for Rhaegar. I mean, the purple eyes stand out. Um, even if he dyes his hair, there's not that many purple eyed people. I would expect that um, those around Summerhall probably knew it was Rhaegar. And maybe a lot of the people knew that Rhaegar was posing as a musician when he went through King's Landing. But I would I would expect that based on the other stories we get about him, that he would probably be kind to the people he met. It doesn't seem like there's an Aryan behind the the act he's putting up. Let's see here. Let's grab another uh, question from Patreon. Actually, this is kind of related to Mary's one. She, uh, he asked, uh, Eric F says, when is Jon Snow's parentage revealed in the story? Whose support does he gain or lose on that basis? So this is related because a lot of people think his his parentage will be revealed via a um, some sort of information he gains in the Winterfell Crips. Uh, I tend to think. I tend to think not. I tend to think that it is basically just Lyanna's tomb down i think it's basically just liana's body down in her tomb i don't think there's anything really extra i think that john snow's parentage will be revealed in the story maybe through bran maybe during john's resurrection maybe during bran's training he looks back in time you know that's that's one of those things that the the show did a little a little funny but the idea behind it that bran could look back through time and figure out rlj is something that's that's very much on the table he can see through the past uh blood raven has said in the past that 
he would he'd be able to see beyond the trees at some point that the show when i said they did a little funny they accelerated Bruin's powers very very quickly it's supposed to be that he only sees through the trees first and then maybe he learns to see beyond throughout the past i'm not sure if john ever learns it though or if he does he might not learn it till much much later how yeah um Matt in the chat says Howlin Reed's going to let the cat out of the bag. That's another source of information for that. Howlin could could do that. I don't know if he I don't know if he will. If he's going to, I don't know what he's waiting for. Basically, I, um, the idea of Bran looking into John's past and maybe finding some hint of information, or he sees Rhaegar and Lyanna, because that's one of those things that um, that is undersold. That after they disappeared near near River Run. They essentially, as far as we can tell, just travel through the wilderness for months before ending up in Dorne. So you never know. Maybe they pass by some weirwoods and Bran will see them or something like that. Oh, has has Gurm conferred John will learn it? Interesting. Uh, if he learns it in a typical Gurm fashion, it will be exactly when it hurts John the most. Because that's his that's his whole thing. <clears throat> All right. So I think that's good for uh, questions for now. Going to go back and talk about the uh actually john snow comes up with this with the rest of what i have prepared uh so uh the one of the characters who is absolutely motivated by rhaegar and his memory and that that memory is distorted and probably going to serve for horrific things to come in westeros is of course the griffin reborn himself john connington uh connington considers himself one of Rhaegar's closest friends and allies, but we know from his internal POV and what he knows about Rhaegar, that doesn't seem to be reciprocal. Um, most people think uh, that Conton was also in love with Rhaegar. That's, um, that seems reasonable to me. There's plenty of hints that Connington was um, infatuated with Rhaegar, maybe in a similar way to Cersei. They met when they were squires, and then later on when Rhaegar got knighted, Connington then became a squire for Rhaegar as well. And it is from all this time they spent together that uh, Connington has this belief that he is one of Rhaegar's best, best, best friends. Whoops about that one. Uh, again, the idea that everyone's missing on the prophecy and that's such an, an important motivating factor for Rhaegar is sort of a way for George to drop you hints about take what this person is saying about Rhaegar with a grain of salt because they're missing a huge part of his personality and his motivations. But Connington holds very dear the memory of Rhaegar and their time together, in particular him visiting uh, Griffin's Roost and Rhaegar playing the harp for court, uh, which again reminds us of how Cersei and Lyanna fell in love with Rhaegar. It was his um, skill on the harp, as well as a, a private moment that they shared on the battlements overlooking the Connington lands. And the quote goes, but when John Connington stepped out onto the high battlements, the view was just as intoxicating as he remembered. The crag with its wind with its wind-carved rocks and jagged spires, the sea below growling and worrying at the foot of the castle like some restless beast, endless leagues of sky and cloud, the wood with its autumnal colors. Your father's lands are beautiful, and you can probably imagine that Connington may have taken that as a compliment on himself as well. Later, Connington ended up serving as hand of the king for Ares as he was going through quite a few hands during the Civil War. Um, it seems that. Connington did it not really for Ares, but for Rhaegar, because obviously if Ares loses the war, it's, assu it's assumed that Robert was going to probably kill Rhaegar and his family. 
So Connington agreed to serve Ares, even though very much he was not on Ares' side of the Targaryen um, loyalist faction. Um, and this is when I, I, I was thinking about this back as I was writing this, and I noticed, and I thought it was really interesting that um, this may have been an attempt by Ares or Varys through Ares in order to um, disrupt again the Rhaegar loyalist faction within the Targaryens. I mean, within the Targaryen, um, the Targaryen side, because it looked like Rhaegar was going to try and crown himself at Harrenhal, got nixed, but you take Connington as your hand of the king as Ares, it, maybe it's dangerous that Ares, that Connington can screw you over, but it also serves to maybe split the loyalties of Connington. Meredith asked, how old was John Con by the time of Robert's Rebellion? Um, most of the characters were pretty young. I'm guessing he was like in his early 20s, maybe um, if he's around the same age as Rhaegar. So that would be mid 20s, I think, when this happened. Unfortunately, Connington ended up not serving Ares super well. Um, he ended up losing the Battle of Bells in Stony Sept. Um, what ended up happening was they trapped Robert Baratheon inside. But instead of fighting, Robert and his men essentially hidden the town, uh, a walled city or a walled town, I guess and refused to come out and fight Connington and the Loyalist armies. And this sort of led to a long game of hide-and-seek, where Connington and his boys would go around and knock down doors and, and see if Robert Baratheon was inside. Of course, he never was. He was hiding. Apparently, he was also hiding near a brothel, because that's how Robert ended up with his daughter, Bella. And this is one of those moments where the impact of Rhaegar is going to turn character in a very, very troubling way. Because Connington reflects on this in his chapters, where he essentially says, you know what I did wrong at Stony Sept? I wasn't brutal enough. I didn't go the whole way. Um, because in Connington's mind, he blames himself for Rhaegar's death by saying, if he had found Robert at Stony Sept, and before the Battle of the Bells happened, which he also, he lost that battle, um, then perhaps he could have stopped the rebellion before it got to the Trident where Robert killed Rhaegar. Again, this is another one of those things where these characters are taking the blame for Robert's rebellion onto themselves in a whole. In particular, uh, like that quote I read at the beginning, Connington's current uh, crusade for restoring young Griff to the Iron Throne has him considering that only if he'd been more like Tywin, drowning the reins and destroying the Tarbex Lannister, the Targaryens would have prevailed. That, that Tywin would have burned down Stony Sept and everyone inside, including the common people, to kill Robert. And that, that to Connington seems like what he should have done in retrospect. Now, that's a horrifying mentality that Connington has decided that for young Griff, war crimes and mass death of everybody and anybody, there's no, there's no cost too high to see young Griff on the Iron Throne. And he's doing this for Rhaegar, though. And when you contrast that to what we know about Rhaegar as a person and his treatment of the common folk and the idea that he wanted, ostensibly, a bloodless coup between him and Ares, just not Ares dead, not Ares put on trial, just him removed from power and Rhaegar replacing him. The idea that you would kill huge amounts of people that don't deserve it just to win a battle for the Iron Throne is antithetical to Rhaegar as we know him. But that's what Connington's going to do it for. He's going to do this. He's going to become, he's going to be like, I'm going to Tywin Lannister this war for Rhaegar. But that's, that's extremely troubling to think about, especially when you 
again shows I think that Connington never really knew Rhaegar that well if he think that's the thing he should do. Connington does have a point, I guess, but it's a terrible point. It's a it's it's a horrible point. Nobody should be thinking like, you know, civilian casualties at any level are worth it. I should do to my enemies what Tywin should do. Nobody should do what Tywin should do. It's um yeah. Not awesome. Uh, oh, Leading Leaf Underhill says she has a theory of John Con snapping at the sound of the bells and burning King's Landing. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah, the bells are something that matters quite a lot to Connington. That would be interesting if that somehow played into it. Oh, you guys are pointing out I am only six likes away from uh, putting on a silly hat for the rest of the stream. 150 put on the wizard hat. 175 put on the Gurm hat. So we're at 144 right now. So slam that like button. seems like Connington's rage and his revenge that he's trying to get for Rhaegar are just like completely divorced from who the person are at this point. If he ever really knew who Rhaegar was, it doesn't seem like he remembers him much anymore. Although I don't know about that one. It, um, and I don't think it will be Connington that will set it off. There's, there's, I don't even know why I put in the, in the earbuds. I can't hear anything. I'm not listening to myself. It's just a habit at this point. There we go. Got that wizard hat going. Oh, the curve's a little off. Oh, there we go. Is that worth it? I hope it was. But yeah, like I was talking about with uh, with Cersei and also with uh, with Barristan, this is another way that a, a misconception of who Rhaegar was as a person and these memories of him that seem totally not in line with what he was actually like as a person um, will drive people to what seems to be pretty terrible things, just trying to like honor him in some weird way, which also could be something you could think about is this with uh, Ned Stark going forward. Any sort of revenge that is taken by Catelyn Stark or Arya Stark, um, Lady Stoneheart, of course, Sansa, John. <clears throat> it's one of those things where revenge in service of somebody that would never want it. Is that a good thing to do? <laughs> I'm glad you guys are happy about me wearing a hat. Oh, and since we were talking about Jon Snow earlier, this is another way that Rhaegar could end up influencing the Winds of Winter in a, in a very big way. And that is through, of course, Jon Snow. Obviously, most people are pretty sure that Jon is Rhaegar's son. I am, I am sure that he is Rhaegar's son. RLJ is the truth. That's how it goes. And it's so, as you watch Jon move throughout the story, it's you, you can't divorce that from the fact that somehow he may be fulfilling what Rhaegar's true um true ideas were about what his goals were and as he said with his uh with his letters with Maester Aemon and reading the scroll about the prophecy Rhaegar thought unequivocally that he was the prince that was promised himself and then he got convinced it would be his child instead that um in particular he thought it would be Aegon son of Elia I guess a comet went overhead and they were like, oh, that's the bleeding star. But him and Eamon for quite a while played the uh, the Azor High game that we play in the fandom all the time, where it's like, you know, salt and smoke, dragons waking from stone, all those kind of things. And they decided it was him. But ingrained in that idea is that, like I was talking about how the other characters who thought they knew Rhaegar misunderstood him, John seems to be kind of acting out some of those things in his own story but without actually knowing Rhaegar or anything about him that that's such a germ thing to do the one guy who doesn't know anything about Rhaegar who doesn't know he's his father that doesn't know any of these 
this like secret Targaryen history with their relation to prophecy may end up acting it out just by being himself. Be kind of a twist on characters you see like Stannis or Danny who are convinced well, Stannis is convinced. Danny's becoming convinced that they are the heroes of legend that will save the world from darkness. Jon seems to be doing it just sort of out of the goodness of his heart and from Ned's upbringing. Upbringing. So, for instance, we have Jon dreaming about being Azor High. In particular, the his choices with what to do with his power are very interesting. So, for instance, he's offered Winterfell and he's offered to become a Stark by um, Stannis. And he comes close to accepting, but ends up rejecting it, feeling that it would be a betrayal of Ned, the Weirwoods, and also his duty to the to the Night's Watch if he gave up his vows in order to essentially just make himself feel better about not being a bastard anymore. And that would be a a kind of choice that you can maybe see in parallel with Rhaegar, where it doesn't seem like in any way he wanted to be. The king himself he didn't want to be a peerless warrior he didn't want to be a zora high or anything like that he sort of just he felt that he had to be that it was his that it was written in prophecy already that it was his duty to be a good king and it was his duty to save the world from darkness because that was his destiny and for john to seek to get power and use it to try and end the the endless war against the others would be something that I think Rhaegar would be very proud of him for doing, even though we know John has struggled with it a giant amount. Um, obviously, he tried to desert when he was younger to um, join Rob's war against the Iron Throne. He very much came close to saying, yes, totally, I'm going to be uh, John Stark. He was tempted by Egret. He's tempted by Val. It's not like, and I think that internal struggle and sort of the the melancholy that it brings on John that he is always in conflict that he does it, should he be John Snow should he be John Stark should all these kind of things are probably the same things that Rhaegar struggled with his internal identity versus his external one at some point you have to imagine well we know that Rhaegar sang of melancholy and sad songs all the time it's very possible that Rhaegar did not want to be any of those things, that he would have been happy maybe joining the Citadel like Maester Aemon or just living a quiet life reading his books, but he clearly felt that he could not do those things. And that's sort of the a parallel we see with John. I think there is a question from YouTube. Uh, I forget which one, but somebody asked a similar question like, is there anything of Rhaegar in John? And I think that dichotomy is feels very Rhaegar-ish from what we know about him. Uh, no, Guilty Undertaker, he has never played a harp. John has no musical skill. Maybe George thought that would be too on the nose, but he does interact with Mance quite a lot with his harp. So the sad, yeah, the sad boy element, says Sasuke, definitely. Yeah, and, and the idea of wanting power and using it for a specific purpose is, again, the sort of thing that Rhaegar seemed to be up to. It doesn't seem like he wanted the Iron Throne and Aerys' crown for personal glory it seemed like he wanted it for a specific purpose which was to save the world from darkness oh another super chat here from uh, jay chef you are on a roll thank you so much um you see jay says i feel rhaegar is closest to the idea of love in the story an embodiment of love rhaegar seemed close to the principle of love a touchstone for us but other characters in respect to rhaegar maybe love in kind of like a general way i, I don't think it seems like he ran away with with liana because he 
maybe because of love, but other parts of him seems like he was doing them because he felt he had to the, I guess, like I was talking about the elements of duty and um, like Mr. Amon's famous speech about what would you do um, if you had to choose between, you know, the love is death, the death of duty speech. I think he's not the embodiment of love, but I think he's in the embodiment of that speech that there is very much a lot, a, a lot of um, conflict within himself about how much he should engage with his personal desires and his personal wants versus what he felt like he had to do, which by the way, Rhaegar was wrong. Rhaegar was not the Azor Ahai come again. He was not the prince that was promised. His son may be through John, but clearly in Danny's vision, he thought it was the other Aegon. He thought it was Aegon's son. Um, I mean, he thought it was Elia's son. That would be the one to come again and that he needed a third head of the dragon, AKA another child. Yeah. Rhaegar was absolutely wrong about what he was doing, but it doesn't mean that is less consequential than his relationship to those ideas and thinking about them. And this, this is a question that came up uh, in a few things that I got where when John learns about Rhaegar, what will it mean for him? And it's kind of unclear what it will even mean for him because he in no way thinks about Rhaegar. John does not think about him. He doesn't even think about Lyanna. Obviously, he doesn't know the truth. But it's not like he as a character is obsessed with Rhaegar as a character. The the people he idolizes are like Aemon the Dragon Knight and Daron the Young Dragon. Rhaegar doesn't even come up. So it's when John learns that he is Rhaegar's son and Lyanna's son, it kind of matter. It kind of matters what information you're also getting on top of that, because like that's an identity change, knowing that you actually are a an heir to the Iron Throne, but it doesn't do anything for John as a person unless he also learns about Lyanna and Rhaegar. It has to be both or else it's just kind of like, oh, you have a claim. Neat. It's got to be something else. Um, and the tragedy of that is the person that could have told John all this is now gone from the Night's Watch and is now also dead. That's Maester Aemon. Aemon could have been an invaluable source for John about teaching him about his about his true father what he wanted, what he thought of the world, what what he was like on the inside, what he hoped for his children, that kind of thing. That would have been enormously valuable for John as a character. And George has specifically denied that from him. So I think that's that's something that may happen with John in the future, that when he learns this information, he may get a skewed view of Rhaegar. And it really matters who tells him about Rhaegar. Like if you hear about Rhaegar from uh, from Cersei, that would be very different than if you heard about him from maybe from Howland Reed or if you heard about him from uh, from John Connington. Yeah. So I think George is very much not going to give John the whole story. If he wanted to, he could have done it through Aemon. So there seems to be some other tragedy or some other idea that's going to be at play. And even if you look at the characters that are still around that did know Rhaegar, none of them are really in a position or may not be willing to tell John anything about him. And that is, you know, Barristan Selmy, Cersei Lannister, Jamie Lannister, John Connington. Which of those characters would actually shoot straight with John if they even believed he was Rhaegar's son? Probably none of them. Maybe Jamie. That would be that would probably be about it. Oh, just, uh, what's here? 169 likes, uh, six more and the germ hats going on. See if we can get that before the end of the stream. Oh, um, 
Eamon did not have a epiphany of John's true parentage. It's just that when he was dying, he talked about Rhaegar quite a lot to Sam, getting it off his chest. That information, if communicated to John, knowing that would be amazing for him, but it's just not going to happen. Uh, he is next level dead. He is in a barrel of rum. Yikes about that one. Sorry, Eamon. And I think the, the last character that is very important that Rhaegar will come into the story through again, and that is, of course, Daenerys. Um, she has the only interaction with Rhaegar we see on the page that is in a memory, and that is in the House of the Undying, when he sees uh, Rhaegar playing his harp for Elia with um, Aegon in her arms, and he talks about the Song of Ice and Fire and how he has a song, the dragon must have three heads. And I was talking earlier about how Cersei and Danny have some sort of overlap, and this is part of the overlap. They they have both been exposed to prophecy about themselves at a young age, and they are both kind of related to Rhaegar. And Danny has kind of internalized this and oh, did we get it? Okay, we got it. <laughs> Hang on a second. Let me gather my thoughts and put on a different hat. <laughs> Uh, this one fits much better. I have a giant head, so it takes a big hat to cover it. Oh, see a shade of the evening. Thanks for uh, stopping by. And also for the super chats, that was very kind of you. And it's also that uh, Danny has gotten a view of Rhaegar, mostly from Viserys, and she's also been learning about him from Barristan. But in her own dreams and in her own mind, she associates herself with Rhaegar among her family members more than anyone else. There's a particular dream where she dreams herself um, as Rhaegar on a dragon. I believe that's the one where she's um, roasting Robert Baratheon and all the usurpers on the trident who also happen to look like others. Weird. But as I was talking about earlier with Barristan, the idea of Barristan Turncloak and definitely the emergence of Fagon or um, of young Griff will have an impact on Danny especially since she has a positive association with Rhaegar in her own life, but she might not anymore when she realizes, oh, um, I'm no longer the heir. Do I have to share my power? Do I have to share my dragons with him? That, that could be a big point of contention for her, especially if Barristan and also the Dornish. The Dornish, uh, through Quentin Martell, she was offered their support. If she doesn't get that anymore and instead it goes to young Griff, it may be that Danny's perception of Rhaegar as a character as a person ends up shifting from a positive one to a negative one and then if she meets maybe the true son of Rhaegar would that would that then carry over to him I didn't particularly like the show's um, way of putting John and Danny against each other but the memory of Rhaegar and young Griff and the way people are going to support young Griff versus her is I think a better way of trying to create the conflict the internal conflict for danny about why she may end up um not particularly liking Jon snow once she learns his true identity that he's essentially the end point of a long series of betrayals looking forward to that one right everyone's looking forward to john and danny having uh problems in the books although they i think a lot of people have better perceptions if it's a little bit more set up a little bit better but that's that's how it goes all right so we got about uh 15 minutes left so let's do this open q a stuff throw me questions we talked about a lot today we talked about cersei we talked about barristan john connington danny john um the winterfell crips all that other kind of stuff what do you got for me 
Let's use this last 15 minutes productively. Uh, so here's one from Guilty Undertaker. How much of Rhaegar is revered due to the fact that he's dead and thus people are able to project their hopes and dreams onto him without their disabuse of their notions? Absolutely. I think that's totally true. Rhaegar, like we know that Ares was not always the person he became. In his youth, like Ares was seen as like not the best guy in the world, but he was well liked. He seemed capable um, after all the turmoil after Summerhall. People are like, all right, well, him and Tywin seem to have a good head on their shoulders. Things are pretty good. Um, and then as time went on, Ares turned into the Mad King as we know him. So the fact that Rhaegar died so young when a lot of the Targaryen monarchs we know about end up changing as power is imbued upon them is definitely something you can't overlook that Rhaegar as he died was basically at the height of his reputation and um within Westeros who knows how that would have changed if he actually ended up king or if he won the war oh super chat here from Aaron M <laughs> uh $20 she wants me to talk about my shirt thank you very much Aaron the super generous um so my shirt is what I got at Con of Thrones, and it says, your Night King theory is stupid. <laughs> it's one of the ones that I got for free from Watchers, from the wall, Watchers on the Wall. Um, wait, it's... Um, your Night King theory is the worst. I'm sorry, it says is the worst. This is when everybody had crazy theories about how Bran was the Night King, and they were analyzing his nose, and there were all this other kind of crazy stuff, and they made an awesome shirt about it, so I enjoyed that one. And got, a, and got one to wear all the time. Red Tiger 91 says, what do you think Helen Reed will do if he has any impact on John and his parentage? That, that's a really, that's a really confusing one um, because what is Helen waiting for? If we take his, his actions at the turning of Harrenhal as any sort of like um, indicative of what he's going to do in the future, he seemingly sat on the Isle of Faces for years and then showed up at the exact right moment to push destiny in a particular way by making sure he got beat up by some squires and then Lyanna uh, protected him it, it's possible that if Helen Reed shows up he's waiting for the precise moment when he has to do something maybe inform John or the realm about his his true identity him and Bran are definitely the top of the list of who will inform John of his true parentage although Howland did not know Rhaegar um, so that may if you're looking for a character that would not give any context to it Howland is one of those people that would just be able to deliver information and not really much else about Rhaegar as a person. Their only interactions were very briefly at the tourney of Harrenhal and he, Rhaegar was long dead before they showed up at the Tower of Joy. I'm glad you guys like my shirt. It's one of my favorites. It's got a, um, hang on a second. It's got Bran and the Night King side by side. <laughs> Sophie B. Powerhouse, do you think that Gurm will take the route of making John's Targ heritage show physically post-revival through magic or trauma? Um, as I typed out in my theories earlier in chat, I did not see those theories. Sorry about that. That is something that I think would be cool to see. I think I talked about that with Gray Area on my last stream about how John may come back with like maybe like white hair or um, some sort of magical changes through his resurrection. Kind of like Theon. Theon has become essentially looks like an old man now through his uh, through what's happened to him. So George is not opposed to changing the appearance of his characters through extreme circumstance. I personally would like it if he came back with red hair. I mean, with uh, white hair, and maybe his eyes came back a little purplish or maybe a little red from uh, from his time being a popsicle. 
That'd be interesting to me. I don't think it has to, but I think that would be cool. Oh, $5 super chat from Lena Snow. No message, but thank you very much, Lena. That's very, very generous of you. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? Showed up right for the end. Thank you for, I appreciate the shirt compliment. Amanda, you got anything to talk about with Rhaegar? I, you always have thoughts. I always have good thoughts too. I'm not sure. I'm still not sure how to pronounce your name. I'm going to do my best. Um, Liet Rubenfeld. What do you think is the symbolism of Rhaegar's rubies? So that's one of those confusing ones where the rubies and George's use of magic is that he really loves the idea of like magic crystals and magic stones. It is a common running theme in his stories. Uh, in particular, it shows up in Night Flyers. It shows up in The Thousand Worlds, shows up in The Glass Candle. He really digs the idea of magic crystalline stones. So it, it's tough to say because this is one of those things that have led people to think that maybe it wasn't Rhaegar that died on the trident. Maybe the rubies meant it was glamour and therefore... It wasn't really him, that kind of thing. I, I don't really know. It's the rubies seem like to stand in for blood that um, when Rhaegar got absolutely housed by uh, Robert Baratheon, that instead of him bleeding out everywhere, the rubies went everywhere. But I don't know. Melisandre uses the rubies very differently. Rhaegar seemed to use them for um, for decoration. I don't think Rhaegar is an explicitly magical character. I don't think he's like Bloodraven. I don't think he's like Melisandre, but I think he is following uh, prophecy himself. Thoughts on Arthur Dane sacrificing? Um, I, I've heard theories about that, that um, that they were going to try and hatch like dragon eggs and Arthur and the Kingsguard went down there to die. I don't think they intended to die, but I do think that they, I think they were concerned that they couldn't trust Rhaegar's son with any representative of Robert Baratheon, even though it was Ned. That child's life would be a living hell no matter what. So I can understand why the Kingsguard decided to guard him and die for him. Although I imagine some sort of plan like where with Danny and Viserys, where they went to Essos was probably the better idea, but Rhaegar's a weird guy. So who knows? Oh, uh, I guess I missed a question from Lena Snow. Um, thank you, Chrissy, for posting that for me. Do you think Rhaegar literally saw Danny in real time during the scene with her in the house of the undying? I love thinking about this question. Was Rhaegar talking to her or was this a memory from somebody else that's being replayed? Um, because according to Danny, when this is happening, she perceives Rhaegar looking at her and they meet eyes. So does that mean that it was like a time travel thing? Like, is that, was that something like when Bran goes back in time and then can hear him? Or was that somebody's memory that was standing in the door where Danny was? And that's why she perceived it as being talked to her. How's the undying is weird. And so is the, um, the shade of the evening so i it's hard to have a real answer on that but knowing george's love of the idea of doorways and portals and that kind of stuff they show up constantly in his stuff i would guess that 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 somehow the house in the undying had like a some sort of portal to the past oh, another super a super chat here from uh robert thank you very much super generous did Rhaegar misinterpret the prophecy and conflate it with what he probably learned about Summerhall? took a different path to restore targaryen power absolutely we know that that him and Aemon tried to fit Summerhall to fit the Azor High Prince I Was Promised prophecy. They thought that the tears were the salt. They thought the burning building was the smoke, all that other kind of stuff. We know for a fact that Rhaegar misinterpreted the prophecy. And it may be only through John accidentally that Rhaegar will end up making the prophecy come true in some way about Jon Snow being some sort of um hero against darkness 
But yeah, absolutely. Rhaegar was wrong. He misinterpreted quite a lot of things. That's one of my favorite things about Rhaegar is he seems like he's portrayed as this like um, high quality person. People seem to love him. He seemed to be doing everything right to become king. And then like absolutely swing, swing and whiffed on like huge things. <laughs> uh, Tony Teflon's in the chat. He says to me, it's like when Cardi B looks in the camera and says, I love you. I swear she's talking to me. She is talking to you, Tony. Cardi B does love you. Uh, just got a few minutes left. Uh, let's see if we can grab some good ones. I'm sorry. I was scrolled up earlier. I was trying to grab them sequentially as they came in. Oh, Aaron tried to alert me too. I didn't see that one. Sorry. Uh, uh, Laura7n says it's off topic, but I have a theory on Valyrian seal absorbing souls and creating the others. Thoughts? Um, I definitely think that the missing element of Valyrian steel is that they are soul blades. That, um, that the secret to how the Valyrians made their swords is that they um, they sacrifice people to it and that they might actually contain the dead souls of the people that were sacrificed for it. This is a, a common idea in, in fantasy and the idea of like a demon or some sort of person being trapped in a blade and that makes it super magical. That is, I think that's absolutely what's going on with Lear and Steel. And the, and the reason nobody else can figure it out is nobody else is willing to go as far as the Valyrians with their absolute disregard for the value of other life. It would be absolutely on par with the greatest slave civilization, the one that essentially used the death of slaves and the absolute destruction of other civilizations for their own power, that they would not give a crap about trapping somebody inside a sword for forever. Uh, yeah, I agree, Guilty Undertaker. I do think that um, Arthur Dane, Oswell went, and Gerald Hightower definitely thought that John was king. That um, that they may have been aware that Aegon and Rhaenys were dead, and that as Rhaegar's last child, that John was the uh, the true heir and the next king. Uh, Adrian Burchill says, "Did Robert kill Rhaegar after Robert had surrendered? No, he killed them in uh, in combat. He just crushed his." Uh, Crossed his breastplate and killed him. Yeah, Elric's sword. Elric of um, Melnimity, I think that's the one. The Elric saga definitely has um, definitely has the idea of the soul blade, but it's not just them. It's it's a common fantasy trope. So I think that's what's going on. Uh, Morley, I wonder who do you think would have been sacrificed to make ice, Blackfire, and Dark Sister? Well, another part of the idea of a soul blade or like a soul being trapped in an object is that the more powerful the soul or the more powerful the sacrifice, the more powerful the blade, the better it is. So I would guess that the amount, like they said that making the swords cost a fortune. I'm wondering if it didn't cost a fortune just because of making the swords, but because you also had to maybe pay for the sacrifice and maybe like when you're buying a car and there's different options, it's like, Oh, I, I want the I want the top tier sacrifice to make my soul my soul blade super awesome. Although I doubt that they would have shared that with anybody. That seems to be in a Valyrian secret. They would have just quoted a price, which seems to be the way it works. With specific person, um, I would guess this. If you wanted to make the strongest blade, it would be something like like we see with Lightbringer. The idea is that Azorahai tried to kill two things he didn't care about in order to make the sword, and then finally he sacrificed his wife, and then that made the the flaming super sword lightbringer so i would guess that if you wanted a truly powerful blade that was really magical something like lightbringer you'd have to almost like actually funny reference like from a, a spoiler alert for avengers endgame when uh, you have to kill somebody you love for the soul gem so that would probably be 
something along those lines. Great. The, you know, the great power comes at a great cost. Only death can play for life. That sort of thing. I bet you could get a crappy Valyrian steel sword if you just like sacrifice a slave. But if you hand over a family member or someone you truly love, then maybe it would be much more powerful. Or maybe the Smiths had to do it. Maybe the Smiths had to sacrifice someone they cared about. And that's why they charge so much. <laughs> Don't spoil Endgame for us. It's been a while. Okay. I'm just telling you one part that the soul gem requires a blood sacrifice. Actually, that wasn't even from Endgame. That was from um, that was from the other one. Avengers Infinity War. That was from Infinity War. Yeah. We already knew that one. Let's see. I'll take one more question and then we're going to call it for a day. Do any of you guys know what Rio Westeros is streaming about today? I didn't have a chance to check, but they'll be going on at five and I'm probably going to be watching. Oh, interesting. Uh, from Daniel Cathers, they ask, are faceless men performing a blood sacrifice when they give someone the gift? Is there any magical power that comes from a killing or any evidence of magic after a known killing in the story? So that's super interesting. If the faceless men are they harvesting like souls basically uh, when they give somebody the gift, their perception from what I remember is they consider it. They're just giving up souls to the red God, um, the red God of death. Basically that's what Jacken says. The fit, the many face God basically, but we know there is magic in the faces. Like for instance, when Arya puts on the ugly little girl's face, she starts living her memories. So there's definitely something magical about the faceless men and that they are collecting magic in some way. Um, Maester Mary and I were talking about in the, in the patron slack about the idea of witch hunters and how the faceless men may have learned to use the tools of the Valyrians against them in order to bring them down. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some similarity between what they're doing and what, um, and what the Valyrians used to do. Radio Westeros, they're talking about... Jamie, do they have a guest? I don't know if Radio Westeros has a guest. Yeah, I think that's about it. We got up to looks like 250 people. Uh, a whole bunch of very generous super chats. I love the questions. I thought I did enjoy the the more back and forth nature of this one, getting to answer a lot of questions because it's such an, an open, broad topic. Thinking about Rhaegar, thinking about his impact on the Winds of Winter, thinking about how even though he's long dead, he's still a major part of the story. Um, oh, Kyle from Blood of the Podcast. Thank you so much, Chrissy. Um, but yeah, so I will see you guys. Let's see here. Tuesday for Crusader Kings 2 stream. And then obviously next Saturday, same time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's do all, make sure you do all the YouTube things before you leave. Um, subscribe, like, hit the little bell button so you actually get notifications. If you don't hit the bell button, YouTube won't send them to you. You have to hit that. Also, you know, leave a comment if you're watching this on replay, leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you watch it. If you want to support me, you know, super chats are, are great for that. Also, patreon.com slash Joe Magician. Get access to stuff early. Got some new videos coming out. I think we'll talk about that next time because I'm running over time. But yes, thank you so much. Make sure you go check out uh, Radio Westeros. Uh, they'll be streaming live at five with uh, Kyle from Blood of the Podcast talking about Jamie Lannister and the Winds of Winter. I'll probably be watching that. So hopefully I'll see some of you there. Have a good weekend, you guys.